Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 38 of Legion Cast, Fear to Tread. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Brandon. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, those of you who walk the Scarlet Path, welcome to Legion Cast. Great to be back for another book, everybody. And my brother, Manipal. Thanks for having me. Greetings, Longbeards. Remember to keep your blades sharp because you only cut yourself with a dull blade. Good advice. Uh, real quick, what's on everybody's hobby table? I have been working on Treebeard, Merry, and Pippin. The, Brandon, would you call it like a painting league that we've been doing for Middle Earth? Yeah, it's kind of a new year, new army thing slash painting challenge as well. So, uh, been quite a bit of fun. Our friend, uh, friend of the show, J-Max Armies of Middle-Earth, uh, purveyor of the finest bottom-tier Middle-Earth content on YouTube, has been doing that uh, in his Patreon Discord, so we've been working on that. Yeah, so I... Uh, the Basically, I wanted to get those three models knocked out because they all came together. I think they're really cool models. Uh, I got them all painted up. I think they look great painting-wise, but I'm having trouble with the basing. Because for as long as I've been doing the tabletop stuff, painting miniatures and all that, I've never done like a forest or greenery style base. I've only ever done like kind of urban terrain or like snow bases or gravel, stuff like that. So uh, I've got some, I, I basically put flock down on a flat surface and it looked it looked really weird. So I've got some STLs of like fallen branches and mushrooms and stuff that I am going to print out and I'll get those painted up and put on the base and it should add quite a bit of dimension to it. But that's what I've got going on. What have you guys been working on? Well, on a, on a big base, like for a tree man, when you just do the straight up green flock, I think you actually look like you had lichen. Yeah, so I wanted to go for that kind of um, the Fangorn forest floor like you see in the movie, and it's kind of very dark and kind of patchy and scrubby because the the canopy of Fangorn forest is so thick, the sunlight doesn't actually penetrate. So you're not getting big patches of green grass. More likely you're getting, like you said, kind of lichen or scrub grass, stuff like that. Yeah, and you can buy... Uh, kits of miniature leaves. I've got some in my hobby drawer here. I might bring you up some. And one tip for people that are doing just the, the plain green flock, most times when you look at grass, the grass itself is not perfectly smooth. It's not always a golf range. What you do is you put down a nice layer of white glue, put a heavy dose of flock over the top of that. And then as it's drying, you take a toothpick and you put little divots in the glue as it's drying. And that gives you more of a 3D texture on the grass. That might help a little bit. Then your situation, maybe you're not using the, the goblin green classic flock, but maybe you pick a darker blend or a, an autumn blend. You might get good results on that. But just the, I think the one you showed, part of it was just a flat painted surface. That's always going to look a He's little He's striding across Saruman's uh, golf golf course, so it's, it's all nice and smooth. So Right. So I don't, I haven't uh, got much work done on the hobby table itself, but I found out that my living situation is going to change a little bit. I've got another house out in the country where that's my, like my day off spot. Uh, 
but I'm getting kicked out because it's uh, going to be now turned into a rental property by the people that actually own it. So I have to get all my hobby stuff out of there. I'm going to move it into the basement of my house. And there was an old theater room down in the basement that had actual seats from a theater and three, like three platforms. And when you think about going to like watch a movie and get comfy, you don't really think about an old metal theater seat. So um, I got rid of the seats and then I had a team of guys come in and help me get the platform itself out, which was a bear because we think that when the house was built, they had the construction team from the local high school come and use it as practice. So this very plain, easy to build platform is made with fire breaks, fully insulated, put together with four inch nails and construction screws. And the plywood was glued, was also glued down to the two by sixes. That then in turn was anchored with probably a dozen concrete anchors into the floor. And those had to be ground off with, uh, with, with a grinder. But now that that's gone, I'm going to get some fresh carpet in there, bring down my hobby table, build some bookshelves, make the ultimate game room. And I'll be putting pictures of that up on my, um, Instagram. Put it on Twitter. Instagram's yeah. dog shit. I'll, I'll probably do both. Awesome. So that's my that current hobby. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, my current pro- hobby is I just got back from the Las Vegas Open, uh, which was a really good time. I think uh, we're going to be going into details about that on our next Hobby Roundtable episode, so I don't want to dive too much into it here. But I know a lot of people, when they go on the uh, a trip to a convention or just on the road to a tournament, when they get back, they're kind of like, oh, I need to decompress. I don't want to touch anything hobby related. I'm almost the opposite. As soon as I get back from a convention, I am ready to go. And I have so many more ideas that I want to paint and stuff like that. So I've got a few different projects running concurrently. I've got the Middle Earth stuff that I'm doing for uh, for our painting challenge, as well as my local league. And then also I've got an Emperor's Children Legion Champion with a jump pack that I need to finish up. Uh, so he's been staring at me as well. And then in honor of this book, I finally broke out from my closet, Kabanda, the Demon General of Cygnus. So I washed that resin today and it's sitting on my kitchen counter drying. So a lot of different projects in motion for me, but that's kind of how I like it. Sounds like a lot of fun. I'm excited to see Kaban out on the field. So I'm happy that you were texting me about it earlier today and you're like, oh, I should really do it. And I was just like, do it, do it. I'm sending you Palpatine memes and Shia LaBeouf memes. Do it. Follow your dreams. And you're like, no, I've got too much stuff to do. And I finally pressured you into finally getting it out. How long did it take you just to wash the pieces? pieces? Oh man, just washing the pieces today took about an hour. There's a lot of resin in that kit, so... Should be uh, should be interesting. We'll see. I've already got an idea of how I want to paint him. Um, it's very laborious and very intensive, but I really like this red that I have a recipe for. So it'll pl- plus it'll uh, really let me, you know, break out my my Iwata my nice airbrush and do some work with that. Is it the same way you did that corn dragon for Age of Sigmar? It is exactly that. Nice. That's a really good color. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, that's for for those counting. That is nine different reds that will be going on through the airbrush. Very cool. Do we want to get into the hobby news? There, there's a really cool announcement last week. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what we got is uh, they announced that the next big supplement is coming. Uh, it's going to be Beta Garmin, which I was kind of surprised. That's pretty far into the heresy. Um, but it's it's exciting because we're going to be getting rules for Black Shields along with the Shattered Legions. Now, I know Shattered Legions is somewhat popular, um, and they've been lacking rules for a while, as well as Black Shields. Black Shields is one that I've been hearing about people wanting for quite a while. Uh, so I'm excited to see what uh, what comes of that. This was actually on one of our earlier Hobby Roundtables. We talked about how much you play a Shattered Legions group and maybe in smaller combat. So go back and listen to the old podcast. Might see how, how see if they were listening to us or not. Uh, I really like how they have, they've got a, a couple, they've got a squad of like five black shields painted up here in black and bronze armor, and they look freaking amazing. Um, so I, I am super excited to get my hands on that book. I will definitely be pre-ordering that one. I'm not even going to risk not being able to get my hands on one. So yeah, super stoked there. Uh, really excited for the Shattered Legion rules too. Um, that that should be really really cool, and you know as as AP or as uh, our other host Paul has said, I think I'm even on the last episode. Games Workshop is excited to get to the end. So, Brandon, you s mentioned a little bit ago that Beta Garmin seems like they're skipping ahead quite a bit, but yeah, you know, they're they're eager to get to the Siege of Terra. So, here's a little trivia question for you guys, or at least maybe an opinion on it. There is some speculation over the years that the death watch from 40k was formed out of the black shields from the 30 from the 31st millennium and even now they say that in these uh in these old in these death watch watch stations once in a while they'll get a space marine who shows up with his armor already painted black wanting wanting something to do and they don't ask any questions about their history um, is there, do you think there's anything to that or do they just say, use the same? I'm not really sure about that. Um, I know there's some lore that the Inquisition or the Ordo Zeno specifically put together the Death Watch. So basically, so that they had some heavy hitters within their order and they drew from the ranks of all the different chapters to kind of cross train and get a lot of mix of good skills in and all that. And I think it just kind of took on a life of its own. More likely the black shields went into the, the Knights errant and the uh, gray Knights at their founding, but it, it could go either way. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Brandon, do you have any take on that? I'll be a hundred percent honest. I don't know enough about black shields to really, you know, I kind of just have the high level. They're like, you know, members of the legions who just kind of went and did their own thing. But I, I haven't heard anything of like what ended up happening with them. I kind of thought a lot of them would probably just like flee to the eye of terror. Um, because thinking for yourself is not big in the Imperium. Yeah. I thought the idea was that, that, that there were, there were still individual space Marines from chapters that had gone traitor, but they themselves remained loyal. So they spent the the scouring going after their old compatriots, and that might have then morphed into one of these inquisitorial orders as they found they had no home. 
Yeah, definitely looking forward to the book. And I'm not entirely sure on this little bit of lore. I think it's just a, a theory that I saw in like a 40k theories video a long time ago. But Captain Titus from the Space Marine game, at the end of that game, it's kind of a cliffhanger for him. You're not really sure what happens to him after the game. We know he shows back up in Space Marine 2 because we've seen him in the trailers. But the in interim time, there is a... Um, some short story lore about a chaplain Titus that he was an ultramarine that served in the Death Watch for a number of years. So it's kind of theorized that um, Titus did time in the Death Watch, and I think Catosicarius is his predecessor. Anyway, um, the point being is that these Black Shields or the Death Watch can get drawn from very kind of curious, strange places. And, and as far as their origin goes, I, I don't think we're supposed to know. I think that's part of the charm. So, you know, I mean, kind of theorize on your own. And it, I think it's another kind of one of those doors that Games Workshop left cracked open for us to kind of put together our own lore and, and write our own backstories on our, on our own characters. So that, I think that's kind of the, the way it exists, the way that it does. Yeah, kind of my understanding of the Black Shields is really it's just more like opportunistic Marines who, you know, maybe their legion went traitor, maybe their legion stayed loyalist, but in the chaos of the Age of Darkness just kind of decided, all right, we're just going to kind of do our own thing. Uh, so that was kind of my understanding on them, that not necessarily they were like, oh, we're a part of a traitor legion, but we're staying loyal. It's more like hey, in the absolute chaos of what's going on here, we are genetically engineered superhumans. Let's make some money. You know, like that kind of thing. That that was my kind of understanding of Black Shields. I personally am much more excited for the Shattered Legions because I think this is a really cool concept to take those three legions and the strengths that each one of them brings to the table and find a way to meld them together into a force that... Uh, can kind of have a, more tools in their toolbox than you know an individual legion could. Yeah, and uh, like I said, super excited to see what this book looks like. Eager to get my hands on it. Have we already talked about uh, the Solar Ox? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we did in the last episode, yes. So, yeah, stoked for that too. Should we uh, take a quick break and then jump into the book? Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a good break. I know we did. Uh, we're going to jump into our book now, which is Fear to Tread. And guys, remind me who wrote this one. This one is James Swallow. I rather enjoyed this book. Um, and that is coming from someone who is really not a Blood Angels fan. So I, I, I thought it was quite good. What did you guys think? Uh, interestingly, at the end of the book, there's an epilogue that talks about the, there's the authors are sitting around talking. It's Dan Abnett, James Swallow, and some other guys 
talking about the task they've been given to tell the story of the heresy. And James Swallow talks about how th- this was the one he really wanted to, to write. He said that there were many, many other stories to be told. He wrote Flight of the Eisenstein and Nemesis, two books which we liked. And and then he, he demanded that the, the battle for Cygnus Prime would be his. And he apparently had been chopping at the bit for years to tell the story about Cabanda and, and Sanguinius and then setting up the battle at, at the Emperor's uh, palace later on. So I think he did a, a nice job. I, I would wonder why it took 439 pages. I think it could have been a little a little shorter, but it kept my interest pretty much the whole way. Yeah, so I was I plugged into this book the entire time. Saying that I liked Nemesis is kind of strong. I think it's a very okay book. Anyway, um, I think uh, I've always enjoyed James Swallow's writing style. He also did the 40K Blood Angels books, and they are great. They're very good. I think he did four or five books in that series, uh, and, and they're all very good, very enjoyable. Uh, so, like I said, I've always enjoyed his writing style. He did a great job with Flight of the Eisenstein. This book, as I said, kept me... It kept me wanting more the entire time. I think it's very well put together. I think a lot of the characters are, are pretty well-rounded. I think everybody kind of gets their... Gets a little bit of justice or kind of gets their, their own moment, really. So... Uh, I, I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. Brennan, uh, did you have anything to add there in the intro? Uh, I would just say that I agree with Manipole. My one gripe about this book is I thought it was a little too long. Um, and then the other part of it as well is, for me, and we can get into this more when we get to that point, I I didn't like how the Red Thirst was handled at the end. Um, I, I, th- I thought there could have been a lot more done with that. Uh, being kind of the defining feature of the Blood Angels at this point, and especially how hard it was set up in the beginning of the book of like, hey, the Red Thirst is going to be a central um, facet of this story. And then, I mean, in the actual battle for Cygnus Prime, it just kind of talks about, and there were guys who were giving over to the Red Thirst, and they're all going berserk and all of that, and these other guys are trying not to give in, and... But it, it wasn't as, I guess, as visceral as I wanted it to be, maybe. Um, I'm happy to to get pushed back on on that, but that was just kind of my thought. Yeah, I, I the only co- context I have for it, because I've not been huge into Blood Angels lore, although I have read the old Warhammer comic books, Blood Quest. And Blood Quest kind of handles that interestingly, where uh, Brother Cloten is um, he succumbs to the red thirst at one point and he uses it to escape a prison and kill his, the, the people that have imprisoned him. And then his brothers find him and he's, he's there like slurping up the blood and he says something, Oh brothers, join me for the feast. You know, he's not like he's this blood mad, crazy uh, 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 world eater. He doesn't think he's really doing anything wrong. It's just more of a vampiric sort of thing where he's he's doing what he must to survive, and the berserk part of it isn't quite as big in that in that uh, in those stories. So I think the the line you're always having to um, walk between uh, with the blood angels is: are they these noble, wonderful vampires, or do they are they bloodthirsty maniacs like the world eaters? 
and they're really kind of somewhere in between. So that's a, a that's a tricky balance to hold with these characters, because then otherwise you would just write a story about the the world eaters, right? They're 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 madness. Yeah, these be a little different. It is a struggle. I I think the world eaters are actually in a way more interesting than the blood angels. I think that that they have that gladiatorial theme, you know, like they, they use this berserk rage as a tool and like, they understand they're like, this is our nature. And rather than try to lean away from our nature, we're going to harness it to our own ends. So whereas the blood angels, it's not, even really their nature it's it's made out to be this flaw in their gene seed but like a lot of the legion doesn't even know it exists and the the character in the very beginning of the book um which i really enjoyed the battle in the beginning the 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 xenos that they were talking about i i I didn't want to cut you off but i I do want to get into this the the setup the epilogue or the prologue sorry of the book and we're, we kind of got ahead of ourselves, I want to say, but the the prologue of this book, I think, does a really good job of reminding us what the Great Crusade was all about. Because at this point in the series, we've been, you know, mid-heresy for a long time now. And this kind of rolls us back to this perspective of what humanity is is doing out amongst the stars, what the Imperium was doing for humans. Now, the... Um, the aliens that they're fighting, these um, these Nephilim, are, uh, I think, a pretty interesting alien race. And from their perspective, they it, it seems like they're doing humanity a favor. But as we find out, they're actually you know, consuming and slaughtering these humans. And while the Imperium might be full of its own flaws, it, it for the most part, allowed humans to live a human life. But... Oftentimes when humans are in the thrall of different aliens, they're slaves, they're being tortured, they're being, you know, used up as a resource. So interesting, kind of going back to what Brandon was just saying about how the Red Thirst should be explored. I think James Swallow is trying to have a little bit of a set up a parallel here between the Nephilim and the Space Marines. That the Nephilim are these very powerful and seemingly benevolent rulers and the blood angels come in and say, Oh no, we're not like that at all. We're just also super powerful people that want to enslave you and have this genetic problem that could turn us into bloodthirsty killers, but just trust us. We're fine. Do you think he's setting that up on purpose like that? No one really knows about the, you know, humanity doesn't know about the red thirst. It's not a, a known quantity. So when the blood angels and the Luna wolves show up on Melkor you know, they, they are seen as the saviors. There is no uh, there's no perceived flaw in the Imperium when they show up to liberate these humans. Right. I'd venture to say that the Nephilim probably don't think they're doing anything wrong either. It's just in their nature. Well, no, hold, I'm going to push back on that because it's the, the Nephilim's purview is to they, they thrive on the adoration of their thralls. So when when the Nephilim do that, they are consuming the the essence or the, the, the body of their, their thralls. Whereas the blood angels have a discipline and a desire to fight against that consuming nature. So I, I would say it, it's not really the same thing because there is a morality with the blood angels is that they don't want to submit to the, or the red thirst. 
uh, even though even if they might right. not know it exists, they do have this nature to serve humanity in a way, whereas the Nephilim are cultivating a banquet, so to speak. Right. It's one of those questions, though, and maybe in the 40K universe, it makes a little more sense because you don't have all that optimism. But if I said we're going to be ruled by the Nephilim or the Imperium, which one is better for you? Well, like I said, could be a case made for either uh, side at that point. I think, I think we're getting into semantics there. Um, my argument. Right. Well, all I'm saying is that I think Swallow is trying to say that the blood angels are coming in as saviors, but the um, but maybe there's something to them that you don't know yet that we're going to explore. And they're setting up the Nephilim as monsters, and he's just kind of showing the mirror image here of the blood angels, where the result for the people might end up being the same. But they, I, I get that the blood angels... Both of these groups have a savior complex. I think they're very, I think they're pretty different, but they do share that in common. So the, in in this prologue, it also sets up um, Horus and Sanguinius are both on this theater of war, and it does set up uh, puts Sanguinius in this kind of awkward position of you know Horus eventually finds out about the red thirst because of what is going on in the battlefield and. Um, Sanguinius kind of has the opportunity to lie to Horus about what has happened here, and he doesn't even think about it. Um, he just it, it immediately it dies on his tongue. He it doesn't get past his lips. He can't lie to his brother, and I think that's an important kind of part in the prologue here because when the tables are turned, it's a very different story. I I will say this, James Swallow here. This is the best depiction of Sanguinius. I've actually ever read because most everyone else is, does a terrible job of it. Agreed. Yeah. It, and it's one of the things that has made me really not care for the blood. Angels I, I did like him in Horus rising, but you, you got to see very little of him. So it's, it's hard to even imagine him as a primarch. He's not doing, like, he's just fighting beside Horus or he's hanging out with Horus. He's not really his own character in that book. In this book, he's fantastic. For me, this was such a refreshing change from the last one we did with the short stories where the Primarchs are just shown as these whiny um, bitches and then they are unpredictable and, and just take silly actions. But Sanguinius is really thoughtful. He's thinking about what he's doing. He's also humble, but very capable. He really was kind of shown in, in the heroic terms that I've been waiting to see for a Primarch for a while. So I really like that that aspect of it. Yeah. And, and a lot of the other stories that you see him in, like in Horus rising, he's very distant. And as the heresy goes on, he gets very like aloof and distant. And so you, you kind of reach a point after you read about him in a few other books where you go, this guy doesn't actually have a personality. Like, they've never written a personality for him. So it was really nice to see him actually exhibit anything, really. Yeah, he's he's written like a, a superhuman, and he's written like a hero. Uh, I think he has a couple of really great hero moments in the book. Uh, as Maniple said, he's thoughtful. He's very aware of his actions. Um, he, when he's put in a very difficult situation, he's not impulsive. Uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't act like bipolar or, 
you know, kind of this, um, oh, what am I, he's not really, a, he does not written cartoony like some of the other Primarchs can be sometimes. So, yeah, I really appreciated how James Swallow did it. And that, that's why I said um, in the beginning, I've always enjoyed his writing style because I, I think he does a really good job of putting together superhuman characters. It's definitely, um, you can tell, um, like Maniple said, you can tell that this is his favorite Legion um, because you can see the time and care that was put into it. Now, some of that worked and some of that didn't work for me, but it's one of those things where I really enjoy getting to see an author work with who, who you, the Legion, you can tell that they weren't just told, hey, you need to write this story about this Legion versus this is the one they like. Um, another author that sometimes can be less popular, but I really like it like in this regard is Graham McNeil. His when you get to see him work with the Iron Warriors, it's excellent. There are some other things that he does that are less than excellent. So I, I do enjoy getting to see see these authors work with the ones that you can tell they want to work with. Yeah, and you, you talked about him crafting it because he, he takes care to describe the armors and the descriptions of the characters. He knows who they are. He's dropping a lot of hints about their future. He's got a lot of characters that, that make a difference later on. So he's interspersing this with all the old Blood Angels lore. So I can see if you're a Blood Angels fan uh, fanboy, you're going to pick up on a lot of this stuff. And even I understood his reference to the Flesh Terrors. There's a, a Captain Furio in there too for the Furio Dreadnoughts. Fur, Furioso Dreadnoughts. Yep, definitely. So uh, do we need to talk more about the prologue here? Um, or... uh, yeah, the battle for Melchior was interesting. You know, they, they wipe out the Nephilim. The Nephilim are interesting. You find out that they are actually desiccate. They're, they're taking the life force out of the humans that they've enslaved. And eventually many of the humans are liberated from Nephilim uh, being Nephilim slaves. So the there's the little diplomacy scene in the beginning where Horus is talking to these aliens and then Horus's army has drawn out the Nephilim. And I think this is just really well written. Has drawn out the, the vast majority of the Nephilim forces and before the battle can start, the Blood Angels um, deep strike their entire army into the uh, end of the battlefield, you know, at the end of these negotiations. And the, the way that the scene is written where the Blood Angels are descending from the heavens like angels is written phenomenally well, in my opinion. I think it is so cool. It's very visual. It's very cinematic. Um, the... the the scene itself is kind of short action wise, but the description of the entire thing going on is amazing to me. I really enjoyed that. After Melchior, then we moved to the, um, the Kavos belt. And now we get introduced to some alpha Legion kind of, they're just there just a little bit. Kind Are of they the really even there? I, this is one of my favorite parts of this book. If not, quite possibly my favorite part of the book. I just enjoy how this goes down so much. Talk about that. Yeah. So essentially that, you know, the uh, Horus gets named Warmaster and Alpharius puts a call out saying, Hey, I'm going to go bust up this sector full of green skins and I need help. And the blood angels respond with essentially most of their legion and get relegated to picket duty 
functionally. They're like, just make sure that no uh, none of these orc ships escape this sector. So the Alpha Legion just disappear into this sector, and they have zero idea of what's going on. They send a ship in past the uh, past the picket line to try and find these Alpha Legion. All they can find is orcs fighting each other, and the entire time they're sitting there, like, what the hell is going on here? And eventually they they bust up this this gigantic orc ship with uh, that all the orcs are fighting each other and they don't know why. And it's just total chaos and pandemonium among these orcs and the, the blood angels just kind of have to go in and clean it up. And they have no idea still. They, and it never explains it in the book, never even touches what exactly happened there. And I love it so much. Yeah. All, all they're getting are these, these missives from the alpha legion once in a while that says maintain position. Everything's fine. And that's all they get. This like chapter here it to me is a better story than was it the serpent beneath that from from the Primarchs book? This is a better Alpha Legion story than the kind of like uh, spy op of that short story, because yeah, no, it's like as I said, like are you sure the Alpha Legion was even there? It's just crazy, uh, and I think it's really well done. Um, I, I was really happy with how this whole scene went down when um uh, when they they board that. Uh, the orc battleship, which is actually just an asteroid with a bunch of rocket thrusters bolted onto the end. Classic orc design. Love it. Uh, when, when a couple of our characters board that vessel, they end up fighting this orc weird boy that I think is written really well. He's like, uh, he, I don't know what the psychic power equivalent would be, but he's like casted, ha- cast haste on himself and he's zipping around the bridge and it's like, a, it sounds like a squeegee going over glass and he's leaving this greasy smudge of orc warp energy behind him or wah energy. And it, it's, I think, again, it's some cinematic writing that I think James Swallow does very, very well. It makes... Yeah, and then he's like, he's like puking yeah, wah energy on yeah, it's and burning them up. It's, it it's so awesome. Cool. It's almost a 40K story, but we got to remember this is in the heresy. And this is where we're introduced to um, a couple of our characters. We have um, Kano, Kano. Uh, who was a former librarian, and that's um, important to this scene because uh, Kano is fighting this uh, orc weird boy, and he almost uh, he almost gives in and uh, disobeys the edict of Nikea, but a- another character saves him from that and then accuses him of being a witch. So there's a little bit. That's an uh, analysis. Yes. He, and it, it causes this, analysis. um, I, I don't know if I would call this kind of like, uh, rivalry, but, uh, Anelis is very, um, he, well, he's a warden and the wardens in the blood angels were put in place instead of chaplains to enforce the edict of Nikea. And so of course, Anelis's whole shtick is, you know, accusing Kano of, you know, foregoing his oath and, uh, but he doesn't have any proof, and it's just a little bit of tension. It's some some character, uh, some character interaction that I appreciate. It you know, it makes Anellis look kind of like a dick, but he is doing his duty. What what do you guys think of Anellis here? Because I really feel like this was a character that they introduced at this point, and they they definitely established kind of who he is at, at this point, and then he never has any kind of growth. 
he he just shows up to be like, hey, don't do that, and then get dressed down by a superior. So officer. I will agree with that. Uh, I think that's kind of the um, um, an unfortunate aspect of a character like this because when you have uh, the, kind of the law and order guy put into the extreme situation where you have superiors making kind of extraneous decisions, he's going to go against the grain constantly. And as you said, he's just getting dressed down for the majority of the story. Um, it's a little unfortunate. I got the sense like he was just there to be the guy who is standing behind you when you say something dumb and you say, oh, he's standing yeah. right behind me, isn't he? And it seems like that's how he shows up, you know, at these in, inopportune moments. There's an Ellis to remind people that, no, 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 you're doing things the wrong way. Yeah, He's but got- then as soon as as soon as he shows up and says, oh, you're doing this the wrong way, there's a superior officer also standing directly behind Anellis to be like, shut up, Anellis. And that's what I'm saying. It's a little yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. It, 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 again, I think it actually kind of goes into my criticism of this book being too long. You could cut this character... And you don't really need this guy to be like, oh, we're not going to do that if he's instantaneously going to be overruled every time he comes up. So if they say, hey, we're going to do this, you can have just another officer be like, is we sure this is a good idea? And they're like, hey, man, desperate times, right? But instead we get, you know, an entire dialogue of what essentially comes to. Yeah, we're going to do this. We know it's not against, the, uh, not with the rules. And you're it's just really unfortunate off. because when he is put in a position to be the guy that's like kind of holding everybody together, he's just, you know, he's kind of, he's not leading. Uh, I guess he thinks he's leading this group of blood angels um, in a, a favorable way, but it, realistically, he's just kind of gone on a killing spree. So it, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't really get to see him do anything. Um, worthwhile or heroic or anything like that uh, i i do think he was wasted a little bit anyway our other one of our other main characters is uh brother maros who is a apothecary and he is returned to the fleet just in time for this picket duty and i think he boards the orc vessel as well yeah he's been on recovery from was it an eldar weapon an eldar death seeker round he was sh- shot in the stomach and yeah, he's, um, he's recovered from that. And I think it gives him a little perspective, uh, because he's had this near death experience later on in the story. I think that kind of gives him a fighting edge because he's kind of already faced death. Uh, he's a character that I really like. Um, I think he's well done. I think his conclusion of the story is pretty interesting we'll see what you guys think when we get there but i i like maros i think he's uh, he's kind of the cool yeah. cool guy you want in your squad he's easy pop he's kind of the ev- yeah kind of the everyman yeah i love that he uses a fucking um, chain axe as we also the carry i just think that's super metal yeah 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 it's really cool i, I love seeing do you think if you painted that you'd make it white with like a cross <laughs> on the side or something <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> that'd be really cool <laughs> Um, right after the boarding of the orc vessel, we also get this little interlude with our old buddy Erebus, and he's visiting Ooh. the emperor's children, and he goes down to see Fabius Bile. Fabulous Bill. And they have this kind of weird interchange, and it's interesting to see Fabius Bile on his back foot, because he doesn't know what Erebus is up to, but Erebus wants this almost dead blood angel for his own purposes. And Fabius has got this guy from the planet of murder. 
Yeah, I I recognized I recognized his name right away before uh, they specified he's from murder because when Sanguinius in Horus Rising, when Sanguinius gets there and they're doing like the role of the dead, Sanguinius hears the name Tagus and he says, I know his his name is known to me. Um, and so I think it's a really good tie in. And this is not the first time that Tagus has been uh, been mentioned outside of Horus Rising. He's he's gotten a really raw deal or deal. We don't really know who he is other than what we see in the story of him. But the couple of um, kind of cameos that he's had throughout the story have been very unfortunate for him. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't like this. Not necessarily the, the exchange between Erebus and, and Fabius Bile. I think that's fine. It's what they do with Tagus. Like, I, I got to be honest, I completely forgot about him by the time we come back to him because he's just he's there in this little blurb in the beginning and then he's there at the end and you're like, Who's this guy again? You know. So that's that was just me. Yeah, it's almost like we needed we needed a scene somewhere where the planet is being taken over when Cygnus Prime is being taken over and falls to chaos. We get just a little tiny bit where, um, you know, the uh, Horus's force forces come in and they're just there for a few minutes. We needed to see more of the planet being taken over and then this whole apparatus being set up that might've then reminded us, Oh, Tagus is here again for some reason. And then we find, then there's a big reveal at the end. I think that with the length of this story, the story that I wanted to hear was kind of a concurrent in the past of watching Cygnus fall. And then in the present of the blood angels, trying to figure out what happened here. We don't really get that. Um, I do kind of think there there's too many characters among the blood angels. It's hard to keep them all straight. Like I've even got the, I've just got the character list up um, as we're talking through it so I can keep it straight. And it's, it's a full page of names. And I'm like half of them. I'm like, who's this guy again? Does he even matter? So uh, I would say that's, that's a critique of the book I have. And then you got the space wolves that you got to remember the word bearers who are also there. The demons have characters. It's, it's a lot to keep is straight in your mind. Yeah, so then Sanguinius gets a message from Horus in kind of an interesting way. We're introduced to this psyker named Sotse, and Sotse has some sort of a, a demon bottle in her belly. That was Did Erebus put it there? Yeah, so these are the warp flasks. We saw these in uh, No No Fear as well. This is how the ward bearers communicate with each other. She then vomits out the smoke, and Horus appears in the smoke and talks to Sanguinius. At that point, I don't know why Sanguinius wouldn't have thought, this is crazy warp nonsense. There's something bad going on here. But he just accepts it and has a conversation with Horus about how you've got to get to this the system where Cygnus Prime is. And there's something, there's been a um, re- revolt and a rebellion, and we think it is the Nephilim. They're back again. Even though supposedly they have, the White Scars have, have cleansed them from the galaxy. But no, there's more Nephilim. So you guys have to go and take your whole legion every single one take them all with you and go well i mean i think that says a lot to the the war master's character and the relationship he has with sanguinius sanguinius trusts him at this point he has no reason to think that Horus would lie to him um we see extraordinary psychers come through 40k in these in this context quite a bit when your best friend and the person you don't think would ever lie to you says that 
this woman has an extraordinary gift and there's another one paired to her on my end. That's how we can communicate instantaneously. Uh, I think Sanguinius is maybe a little hesitant to engage with this, but ultimately he trusts his brother at this point. Horace would never lie to him. That's just the relationship they have. Now, uh, the, the kicker with this, Horace, uh, when they're on Melkor, Horace finds out about the Red Thirst, and he promises Sanguinius that I will do everything in my power to help you overcome this if I can. And so the, the kind of hook to this, um, this Cygnus debacle is the Nephilim are there, and they have some kind of alien gene tech that can help you overcome your gene defect. And to do so, you need to take your whole legion, all that you can muster, and go seek out this cure. And Sanguinius is very uh, invested in this. And again, Horace is war master at this point, so why shouldn't he trust him in this? Horace has already given his word that he would help Sanguinius overcome the Red Thirst. Well, and he uses that as well when Sanguinius does kind of question like, hey, this is a weird way that you're talking to me here. And he basically just plays it off. He's like, look, I'm the war master. I have access to things now that you don't have access to. Right. And he just kind of was like, well, yeah, that follows. I I think it, the setup works for me. I think these two brothers... These two brothers are very invested in one another, and that's that's why we get the interactions that we get. Did we get the uh, the interlude to the actual fall of Cygnus? Uh, not yet. We still haven't met the wolves. Ah, so, okay. Um, after we see Erebus, then we meet the apothecary. Then the the space wolves show up on the on the ship, and they've already been dispatched in order. They've been put around all the fleets in order to keep an eye on things. Because they, historically speaking, were the ones that were always the most reliable. That if any legion fell, it would never be the Space Wolves. I think that was kind of their the understanding right. of the Space Wolves. And so these, this small team has been sent to keep an eye on Sanguinius to see if he pulls a Magnus. Right, because this, this story takes place after uh, the sacking of Prospero. So... Malkador the Sigilite has commanded Russ, who has agreed to this plan, to allocate a squad to each Primarch to be their watcher. We see some show up for Night Lords, Ultramarines, the Blood Angels. Uh, I'm sure there are several. Oh, Alpha Legion, there's a story about that. And, you know, all the, all the ones... Um, there are some that are sent out for the Dark Angels, but because the Dark Angels move around so, so sporadically, they, they're never found. Anyway, uh, Helic Redknife and his squad show up. He's a uh, company captain, or a... Uh, a, a anyway, he's a captain. He shows up with a rune priest and, and a squad, and you know they have their interplay, and their, uh, they show their... Orders signed by Malkador from, you know, they were signed on Terra and then sent out into the void. Anyway, uh, the Space Wolves make it just in the nick of time before the Blood Angels are getting ready to leave the system. And about the same time, a Word Bearers vessel joins the fleet as well. And that's where... Well, the Word Bearers are the ones who bring the message to... Uh, from, from Horus. Oh, yeah, correct. Yeah, so they're already yep, there. My bad. 
Yep. Tannis Creed is the the captain. Or no, he's an acolyte. Uh, what would that be? Yeah, Tannis Creed is the the kind of like the 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 dark apostle. He's an acolyte at this point. He's trying to be the next Erebus. He thinks he can manipulate Sanguinius in some way, but we'll see how that plays out. There's Captain Horrocks, who is uh, uh, with his company, and they. I think the aesthetic of these word bearers is a little interesting to me. Instead of being like the clean shaven uh, kind of um, priestly figures, they've got like these gnarly dreads that are like clasped together with like uh, brass and iron fittings. And they're covered more in the ruins, uh, runes than the word bearers we've seen in the past because they're more in tune with chaos at this point. I think they're described pretty interestingly to me anyway. What'd you guys think? I thought they were very mustachey villainy. Yeah, but they're not the main villains. Yeah, they're not the main villains, so I think they get away with it. They're just they're just there for the setup. They I think they're okay with it, whereas the the Admiral from Battle for the Abyss, he is the mustache twirling villain who is pretty pretty generic and forgettable. Um, the role that they fill in this story, it's forgivable for me. Yeah, but they, they kind of come back there at the end and are at the final showdown as well. and But also then they don't really do anything beyond that initial setup. And it's just, again, it's just more characters that aren't really getting used well for me. Huh. Uh, they don't do anything that I'm like is particularly egregious, but also they don't really, if beyond that initial part, they don't really... I, I guess what I'm saying is they could have set up the blood angels after off and the story would have been exactly the same. Well, and likewise, when you look at wanting a villain in here, this is the point where you get the interlude with Horace's delegation to Cygnus prime. This guy Bruja shows up and then you, you meet Zauber. Who's the, the guy who's the, the caretaker politician. And he was funny because he admitted hiring his secretary because at least she was nice to look at. For not her quality, not her other qualifications. So he's kind of a not a very likable fellow. But but Bruja comes in and says, "We're going to save this. We're going to save you. We're going to bring all the aid that you want." But then you find out that that he's come there to bring about this chaos revolt, and and then blood starts raining from the skies. This Bruja, I would like to see you know that process of how he then takes over the planet, sets up the 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 castle made out of bones and all this sort of stuff. Then you could have had this person have some kind of a showdown to the blood angels at the end or get his comeuppance, but you never see this guy get a bolt round to the head. That's what I was waiting for the whole rest of the book. Oh, you know what happens to him, right? Yeah. Is he the one that he does? Does he give his body over to become one of these demons? Yes. Okay. Which one was it? Was, was he Kabanda? It was Kyrus? the, the, um, Kyrus. Kyrus. Yeah. Because when Kairos dissolves at the end, you see Bruja's skeleton there at the very end. It's it's loosely described. In um this uh, this Bruja guy, he was from Davin. He um is when he makes landfall, he says, "I am from Davin, and I have come to help you." And his whole shtick with the uh, the people, and we get this in tidbits um, as uh, we find a couple of survivor survivors throughout the story, where um, this Bruja guy uh, shows up and says. Um, we can't make this go away, but we can appease it so it stops killing you uh, or so it stops raining blood. His whole shtick is basically getting the populace 
whipped up into a frenzy to start prosecuting one another. And as one of these survivors says later on is that it, it was only a couple weeks before we started building, you know, camps to throw our neighbors into because Bruja said that, you know, they were, um, they were unclean or they were unworthy and, and, you know, we needed to make sacrifice. It's a very chilling. And even though we don't get to see it, it's a very chilling prospect that, you know, this somewhat charismatic or hopeful figure steps into the picture and immediately is able to convince the populace to turn on one another. Every time we got a little flashback or a little mention of that, I kind of was sitting there going, I want to hear this story, you know, this story is pretty exciting to me. Instead of the blood angels go to the third dead planet and weird stuff happens. And then we go to the fourth dead planet and weird stuff happens. Yeah. Can we just talk a little bit about once they get to Cygnus prime or the Cygnus system, like what happens? Can you, can we explain the, cause that's what the, the war master says, go to this system, cleanse it, bring everybody. Once they get in system, this big curtain falls around the whole solar system and they can't see the stars anymore. Could you explain that to me? I think I read it so fast. I didn't pick up on why they couldn't just leave. So they actually do send a ship into it and it's basically just warp juice. And so like that ship gets yoinked into it and everybody dies. Well, when, when warp storms become turbulent enough, they, they can seep into reality. So that's basically what they've done. It's the, the same concept as the rune storm, as the Cicatrix Maledictum, all of that stuff. It, the warp has bled into reality, and that's why they can't get through it, and that's why it's blotting out the stars. So the first planet they go to, that's the one that is um, completely just been glassed. And then as they are watching it, it the surface breaks apart, and turns into the eight-point star. Is that right? Yeah, I believe it. so. Yeah. Then the next, and one. the second one is where they make planet fall, and all the detritus and rubble and debris and stuff is becoming animate and attacking them, and it kills like five legionaries, and it's just it's just junk that is kind of writhing together and slicing them apart, and it's uh, pretty. Uh, it's like a junk golem. I don't know how you would describe it, but um, yeah, it was uh, basically the demons were animating the shit around these blood angels and killing them. And it's because of Captain. Um, uh, why did I forget his name? There's 50, the flesh characters. Uh, That's why you forgot his name. Well, I mean, I just counted yeah, the character whatever. list on the wiki. There's 33 blood angels. Okay, I I get that, but the entire Legion is here, and it's also setting up the footprint for the entire rest of the history. I get that there are too many characters, but it's it is what it is. Um, it 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 doesn't bother me in the same way that it it bothers you. Apparently, uh, I enjoy these little Easter eggs because I, I re- remember Amit being the flesh terror. I remember Furio. Uh, I remember Ralderon uh, and Azkalon. It, it, I don't remember them all at the same time, but when I hear their names, it does ring a bell for me. That's why I appreciate the story the way that it's written. So, interestingly, on that on that planet, when the, the the planet begins attacking the legionaries, and this is just one stormbird, right? There's not that many guys that are down there. 
but there are some of the word bearers. I don't even think it was a storm bird. It was a storm eagle. So it was like 10 guys. But anyway, one of the, the word bearers is killed and the, his helmet is sheared off. And the word bearers all kind of gather around and say, don't look at him. Don't look at him because is it, um, one of the guys gets just a brief glimpse and looks like his flesh has been mutated and changed and all this. So you've even got the word bearers already giving themselves over to chaos and mutation. But I guess I wouldn't have sent those guys to be in such close proximity to the, the legion you're trying to bamboozle because that guy's helmet falls off and the gig is up. So I might've left him at home. Yeah. It, it, no, I agree. It does seem like a pretty big plot hole, but I think um, maybe the word bearers got away from themselves there because um, Tannis Creed was so excited to see the works of chaos up front and, you know, uh, you know, front and center, basically, uh, that he kind of forgot himself is these characters often do. Now, throughout this, Kano is kind of wrestling with his conscience about what he's going to do with his powers, because he knows that his psychic abilities can be of great use to the chapter. And there's been a few places where he's been tempted to use it. He even goes to meet one of the other apoth- one of the other librarians to you know talk about what they what they might or might not do. And you're, you get the sense that there are some people among the Blood Angels who might be okay with them doing this, but they're just being very cautious uh, because they don't want to you know, disobey the Emperor. And this sets up kind of a moral quandary for the end of the story. And you see that playing out as they explore these planets, then eventually when they get to Cygnus. Now, they, sorry, they, they do encounter some wrecked ships out among these planets. And they don't know how they were blown up. They find a bunch of dead bodies. Their bones are all missing. A lot of the ships that they find are um, kind of like orbital vessels. They're not meant to get far away from a planet, but they're out in deep space. And it, it, some of the legionaries are saying like it would have taken them centuries or even a millennia to reach another habitable planet. They never would have made it there in time. And they're not really sure why this is happening, but uh, I can't remember which one of them says it, but they say something on the lines of, because we're thinking like legionaries, we don't understand why they did this. But if we think like a mortal who feels fear, we understand that perhaps they were running for the sake of running. And a lot of the bodies that they find, well, all the bodies that they find, um, I remember uh, Maros is summoned down to a, um, a bay to examine some of these bodies. And a whole bunch of the other apothecaries were summoned too. So there's, you know, several apothecaries there and they're all doing independent studies of a different cadaver and then they'll pool their findings at the end. And basically what they can all come up with is that this body has no bones. It's a whole intact body, no bones. And they're struggling to put that together. So we just left off talking about the body autopsies. Where do you guys want to go from there? Where do they go next? Is is that when the point when the space battle happens or is... Yeah, I think it gets it just, in the space battle. I know you don't feel um, this way, but it just feels like there's a lot of filler between the space battle and that point. Who who attacked it? I don't know. Oh, I feel it was the scrap yeah, ships. Yeah, the demon ships, them. which these are really yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, I actually think the demon ships are really neat. So essentially they form a battle line and get attacked by these demon ships. And these ships, basically, they look like junk haulers. Uh, coming out and then they just like burst open and like have spider legs and mandibles and all kinds of crazy stuff and they're just latching onto ships 
and uh, and fighting them. And this is where you know our our good pals, the word bearers, see that they have an intercept to this uh, Prometheum hauler that's going to crash into the red tier Sanguinius's flagship, and they just decide, yeah, we're just going to drive away now. There was another really important part is that right before the battle, the entire fleet is hit with kind of a psychic wave or kind of this mass psychic flagging Does that attack happen basically before the battle or during the battle. I can't remember. I think it, it happens right at the outset of the battle. So basically what this does is that it distresses all the mortal crews, uh, all the, the mortal crewmen of all these ships. So the space Marines are psycho conditioned to resist this kind of thing very easily, but your standard human isn't going to fare so well. So all of the standard crewmen start kind of going crazy and attacking one another, um, having meltdowns, committing murders, suicides, stuff like that. The lead up to this, we didn't really talk about. There's two things that I think we should mention. When they translate into the warp, once they gather the entire Legion and translate in the warp to go to the Cygnus cluster, nobody notices, but they don't lose a single ship. For, and for a movement this big, they should have just had a few get torn apart by the translation. Uh, but they don't lose a single one. And then the other thing that gets mentioned several times, and a couple of people are like, hey, maybe we should look at this, but you know, they just don't pick up on it, is the crews are committing suicide and doing crazy stuff at an increased rate. And that leads up to this big psychic scream that Warwick was just talking about where basically everyone goes insane at that point. Yeah. And also another little sidebar here, it looks as though James Swallow really likes the red tier because he goes into great detail to describe this ship and how amazing it is and how it looks like a, an arrowhead or a teardrop itself. And he just la lavishes detail all over this ship and it, it almost becomes another character at that point. And you see it, it uh, playing a, a part in the, in the coming battle. So that, that was, that was neat. But then there, there's also we uh, we should not fail to mention is it Ducade the 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 captain of the, the admiral of the ship yeah I just wanted to yeah, talk we, about her because I think it, it would have been a really easy out for James Swallow to just say oh you know this is an admiral with years and years and years and years of experience so while the rest of the crew was going nuts you know, she was able to hold her composure and keep it together. And he does not do that in the slightest. She goes just as bat shit as everyone else. <laughs> but it's written in such a way that you think that maybe, maybe she's got her shit together for a minute. And then at the very end, you're like, Oh no. Yeah, oh no. It's so much. Yeah. Worse. She told, pulls out two last pistols. It just starts blazing away at the at the bridge crew and kills almost everybody right yeah she there's like one survivor she starts blazing away at the bridge crew because they're all going nuts and you think okay well she's the only one on the bridge who's not insane and then she like looks in a mirror and is like oh i actually am one also going nuts it's like they had us in the first half not even gonna right. lie yeah um we also forgot to mention the part where um a couple servitors on the bridge melt down and coagulate into the like projected image of Kyrus. This, um, uh, what yeah. are they? Keeper of secrets. Let's talk, hold on. Let's actually talk about this for a second here. Because the, this is the kind of the second time that we're getting actual real 
like established 40k demons in a 30k story and they picked two gods that i was like that was an interesting choice to put those two together and that's corn and slanesh and i think it's because you see aspects of both of them in the blood angels you know, the blood angels have that characteristic of absolute beauty and human perfection and artistry not maybe not to the, to the same extent of the uh, the emperor's children but they are seen as these beautiful paragons on the other hand, they also have this dark secret that is full of violence and bloodshed. So you could see where both of those powers are competing to get this as one of their one of their chosen legions, right? It could go either way. Yeah, I just I don't know. Maybe and maybe this is just me. I would have loved two of them to dig in a bit more about the fact that these two gods freaking hate each other, and they are putting that aside to bring low this legion which is a big deal i think that talks yeah i think it talks to the magnitude of the situation is that corn and slanesh are willing to work together just long enough to try and figure out the sanguineous conundrum so i i thought it was handled pretty well and i like the interplay that uh that kabanda and kairos have from time to time it's pretty yeah, interesting i, I to enjoyed watch, that actually. as well and actually work let me ask you you did the audiobook right what did you think of the the audio of Kabanda? Because it just drove me up a wall. I thought it was. <laughs> I liked it. It's like he was I thought talking, it was get his hand to his mouth and he was talking, and I was like, "This just sounds yeah. annoying." Yeah. It would be nice if all these were more like a theater production where they had like, and I know there's I can't remember. Martin Amory suggested to me, I listened to part of it. Um, there's one where they actually uh, go through like, that's not tales of heresy or something. Anyway, they actually do it more like a radio play. And several of the stories have multiple voice actors in it. And, you know, it's not a guy trying to do a little girl's voice or anything like that. There are actually yeah. multiple voice actors. In it. It's I understand that they're not going to go to that level for these. Uh, it would be awesome uh, if they did, but I don't know. For me, it maybe this is again because I had this model sitting in my closet and I was thinking about breaking it out. And I'm like, this is a giant bloodthirster with a huge axe and whip. And it just sounds like a guy who's like got his hands cupped to his mouth to talk. And I was like, it's just. It was one of those things that kind of yoinked me out of the story a bit to be like, this just sounds a little goofy. But I mean, we're not really here to review the performance of the the voice we're here to review the story but just something i something that i had there so uh bef just before they're hit with the attack sanguinius has this little audience with kairos um where uh, this is actually before they get to the final planet because kairos is inviting them to the cathedral of the mark and um do you guys really remember what went on in that exchange um, I think Sanguinius kind of asked Kairos what they, you know, what he, what it is, what's going they, on. Yeah, basically, it was like I'm uh, a demon. Kairos, Kairos is basically baiting Sanguinius into coming to the last planet, um, and it's the the first time that the Cathedral of the Mark is kind of hinted at, which is a really gnarly set piece. Um. And Manable kind of spoiled it a little bit earlier, but that's all right. But it's uh, this big cathedral made out of all the bones 
the missing bones of all the bodies that we found so far and all every single bone from this from every living being in this sector has been piled into this giant cathedral called the cathedral of the mark um then you know we got into the the whole fleet action above the was it cygnus prime was the yep. last planet yep cygnus prime um and did you guys de- describe the demons, yeah, the, the, uh, the hulking ships? Okay, yeah. So when Admiral Ducade loses her mind, she actually plots a crash course for the planet. For The, the Red Tear is going to crash into the planet. She trashes the controls, and then she caps herself. And again, it, the way that it's written, like she knows that she's messed up, and she can't really stop herself from... Uh, setting the ship on this crash course. And by the time the Blood Angels figure out what's going on, it's too late to save the ship. And uh, Sanguinius says, you know, everybody needs to pile into the um, the inner compartments. Uh, if we launch escape craft now, they'll just be burned up in the atmosphere. Real quick, there is a, a reason why they're orbiting Cygnus Prime. And it was because it was largely untouched it still had all the fields and and appeared to have settlements that were still there. So they think they can draw Sanguinius in because if there's any survivors, he was always going to want to go save them. So they get drawn closer to the planet there. That opens up the attack in the atmosphere. And they do send dropships down to see if there are survivors, and they find some. And that's where we encounter the psychic knoll. And the- yeah, Tillian... Uh, Tillian Niobe and um, uh, Gerwin Hengist uh, Helladice Hengist um, Helladice Gerwin uh, yeah there are a couple of a uh, couple of other survivors the, the ones to keep track of are Hengist and Tillian because Tillian turns out to be a psychic null and she's the reason that they survived because the demons couldn't see her or the people around. Now, I just noticed this and looking back over the notes here that one of the survivors is Lady Rosen. And Rosen was actually the secretary I was talking about earlier. So she's she's she survived, uh, you know, the initial contact with Bruja. Right. Uh, she's one of, the, one of the survivors that can say this is what happened afterwards. Yeah. So we do we get a little bit more. Yeah, I think she's kind of used happened. in that, like she was close enough in proximity to these people to kind of give the Blonde Angels a little bit of an idea of what actually happened here. So, right. So then we get the scream and the crash of the, it's a battle barge, right? Is that what they call it? It it would be a Gloriana class. Uh, At this point in the, in the stories, it doesn't really seem like the Gloriana class is really defined yet. I think that that comes later because the invincible reason has also been referred to as a battle barge. But then I think the McCrag's honor is referred to as a Gloriana, if I'm not mistaken. So I think at the, when they were writing, yeah, this, they the, were still hashing out what that actually is. The the point, I think the shared history with all of the Primarch's flagships is that they were once part of the Emperor's grand fleet that originally left Terra. So they they were originally in the, you know, the Emperor's care and they were gifted to the Primarchs as they were found, so... That's kind of their defining yeah. character. And Sanguinius actually anyway. puts in some work here to ensure, like, the ship is going to crash, but he's like, I'm not going to allow it to just be burned up and destroyed. So they there is a scene there where they're doing some work to make sure that 
it's a crash landing, but they make it as soft as they as they kind of can. Do you guys think that when Sanguinius is talking to the ship, he's trying to appeal to the machine spirit? Yeah, I don't really know. I, I mean, I it, sure. Yeah, makes sense. So the ship goes down, and it's scary. They they crash land not far from the Temple of the Mark, and instead of um, you know. A lot of people survive. I don't remember if they go over casualty numbers or not, but it would primarily be mortal crew. The space Marines are pretty well insulated from that kind of trauma. They, you know, instead of like freaking out and calling for evacuation, the blood angels immediately dig in and turn this crashed battleship into a fortress, basically that they're now operating out, uh, out of on the planet's surface. And by this time, the, the old librarians have had their vision of this burning angel, right? Yes. And do you guys want to talk about what that, the significance of that? So essentially brother Tano, he has a vision uh, when he's in meditation of this uh, red angel. That's like reaching out towards him, screaming covered in blood. And he kind of gets with some of the other library, ex librarians, I should say ex librarians in the fleet uh, and they, they all realize they kind of have this same vision and they're, they're kind of on this quest to figure out what does it mean. And it's not just the Blood Angels librarians that see it. The Space Wolf Rune Priest sees it as well. Yeah. And it's, it, it is kind of a plot line at that point. It, it, it's another indication that there's serious warp fuckery happening here. This one, I would argue, is actually vital, though. Yeah, um, it's really obvious that uh, the warp is pushing towards this kind of purpose of perhaps corrupting Sanguinius and the Blood Angels, but um, yeah, we'll see how it scene plays with out. Kabanda when he's on the Word Bearer's ship talking to Horus, and Horus says, you know, you need to kill Sanguinius, and they're like, we want to turn Sanguinius. He's like, no, you need to kill Sanguinius. And they're like, oh, you just don't want him to threaten you but we can already see his his legion is on the scarlet path and he's like well if you kill him they will succumb but and and Horus essentially says you're not running this war i am and the demons are just kind of like well no we're the ones running this we don't have to listen to you well kairos kairos specifically is committed to this deal of turning sanguinius but is the story goes on, Cobanda, like after the first confrontation, Cobanda sees that Sanguinius is never going to turn and that the greater alternative at that point is to kill Sanguinius and use his death to enthrall the remaining blood angels to the Mark of Corn. Cabanda gets pretty close. He hits, there's the, a nice fight between Sanguinius and Cabanda, which was action packed. And then in the end, Cabanda doesn't kill him, but he strikes a blow. And in the context of this, there are 500 legionnaires that are all killed at once. And this sends out a psychic shock. First, they see that their Primarch has been struck down, 500 guys all killed at once, and that awakens the Red Thirst in most of the Legion. They all they lose hope. Now their Primarch has fallen, and they now begin to succumb to this Red Thirst that's been hinted at earlier on in the book, but now it becomes full-blown yeah and and it seems like most of the legion kind of has an idea that sanguinius has some less than latent psychic abilities um he's not a full-on psyker like magnus 
um, or Lorgar. He kind of gets premonition, and there's like I think that's part of his Primarch aura as well as a little bit of psychic emanation as well. But that's and it is that psychic shockwave, like Manipul said, that gets sent out to the Legion, and they all just start going berserk. And I kind of thought they could have done. I thought he could have done more with that. Like I would have loved to have Captain Amit there fighting and he's just like gets this backlash and crashes into the red thirst you know or or not even necessarily him but like have it do it tell it from an individual's perspective because it stays it stays kind of zoomed out of just like oh and all these blood angels to come to the red thirst but i'm like this should be more visceral i guess yeah, we could have had like a little vignette, exactly. Of, you know the the mindset that changes in this guy, and then how he what he starts doing now in his combat changes, and then this guy over here does something even crazier, mm-hmm. and that would have been kind of. I feel like that's something that, like Dan Abnett does very well. Is when there's something big that happens across the battlefield, he'll hit it individually. Yeah, he gives a lot of smaller character perspectives to kind of build a bigger picture. Yeah, I appreciate I mm-hmm. And I, I guess I was really missing that in this. Yeah, I can see that. The The Red Thirst is definitely kind of overgeneralized in the story at a lot of points. Um, we do get uh, like when Kano is it's either, no, I think it's Maris. When Maris is hanging out on the ship um, he's kind of like struggling with this inner turmoil of the the red thirst when Tillian walks up behind him and the this kind of urge starts to go away so it she has some kind of um latent null ability that suppresses this and it, it it's where we kind of see the difference between a, a blood angel that is suffering from the red thirst in in this stage I should say and someone who is kind of immune to it at that point um, yeah, I really enjoyed the duel between Sanguinius and Kabanda as well. Um, I thought that that was really cool. And then from there, basically they try to figure out how are we going to be able to save Sanguinius and the librarians come out and they say, we're going to psychic. Them. Right, because uh, Sanguinius is basically put into a coma. His body is healing, but he's not waking up for whatever reason, so... Right. So, yeah, um, Kano and all the other librarians just gather out of nowhere. Oh, it the um, uh, shortly after Sanguinius is struck down, we get the, we do get this little cutaway of the space wolves out on the field and they're approached by Amit and they try to talk Amit down and Amit and his company absolutely slaughter the space wolves just out of rage because they just see these allies that have let their Primarch be struck down. You know, they weren't there to, to, to save him. And, the, you know, they might as well be traitors at that point. So Amit totally loses his shit. And we don't see exactly what happens until later on. But eventually when the Blood Angels find the Space Wolves, they've all had their necks ripped out. And it's a, a very visceral scene to me anyway. Yeah, so the librarians all gather around sanguinius and they determine they're going to go into whatever psychic depths he's into and cano volunteers to be the one who goes in with the other ones supporting him and he gets he gets in, into this psychic maelstrom looking for the uh for sanguinius and actually finds him kind of tied upside down and as he's trying to tearing the the cables away that are holding him sanguinius wakes up and then attacks him 
and then he comes out of the psychic you know um, experience here finds out that someone is killing the librarians some of them have been used up by their all their psychic energies turned them into husks but someone has killed the last couple of them and that is he also real quick he does also see sanguinius fighting horus oh little vision, I don't yeah. even really think it's worth mentioning because I feel like we've seen this vision 45 times in yeah. 10 different books. So. And you find out that it was Hengist, the, the criminal who survived in the crashed ship that has been, that has killed these, these guys. And, um, kind of thinks he's failed, but it's, it's important to note that, uh, Hengist is, sounds like Hengist is being possessed at this point. And the thing possessing him says, Hengist was always loyal. He was here from the start. He was always a member of the Brotherhood or something like that. So he was a cultist plant from the outset. And the word bearers started putting this all into motion like what, 30 years ago when they started kind of finding their own foothold into chaos. They started seeding these cults. So Hengist was always in play to uh, place some part across Cygnus, which I think is worth pointing out. Uh, he, he wasn't just a criminal or a cultist. He was like an actual plant to be a, you know, like the host for some kind of demon or a possession pawn, something like that. Yeah. And, and he's kind of triggered because Ralderon takes uh, the, the blank, the psychic blank, and he takes a battle force to invade this uh, cathedral of the Mark, which the other cool thing we haven't mentioned about the Cathedral of the Mark is the the Blood Angels ask the ships in orbit to nuke it, and they can't find it. So I thought that, that was interesting. It definitely plays into the, like, this thing is not entirely here. It's partially in the warp as well. Um, really plays up that this, this entire world has been, you know, ceded to the powers of chaos. But at this point, uh, Sanguinius wakes up decides to go on a tear towards the cathedral of the mark and, and the blood angels because of their increased ferocity are winning they're they're pushing the demonic forces closer and closer into the mark itself but we still don't know if they're going to completely succumb to the red thirst or not and they still think their primark has fallen so when he shows up that begins to change things back the other way and i thought this was a good climax to the whole story so it, it was a good payoff yeah, this I think this does something that a lot of media gets wrong. Uh, the whole trope of subverting expectations. In in stories like this, we want to see the hero beat the bad guy, and we want it to just be an all out fight, and that's exactly what we get. Um, Sanguinius goes ham. He tears it up. He cuts loose. There's nothing holding him back. You'd almost think that he'd given into the red thirst the way that he goes after these two. <clears throat> well, and I like what you mentioned there, Manipole, of like it talks about the Blood Angels are winning at this point, but then it does kind of say, but at what cost? Uh, because most of them are, are giving over to the red thirst. And it, it does display that, like, if this Legion could be turned, like, they would be a very potent force if unleashed. You know, by the and that's what Cabanda and Kairos are kind of debating inside is which side are they going to go to, and Cabanda's pretty sure he's got him. And when Sanguinius actually gets in there, I think my favorite part was when he <clears throat> is fighting Kairos, 
and then throws his sword and pins her to the wall, you know, with his sword. And she's sitting there for the, for the rest of the battle trying to pull the sword out, but but she can't. While he then takes on Kabanda with his bare hands, which is pretty sweet. My favorite part of that entire thing is when he's looking, when he's talking to Kabanda and he's like, you've needlessly sacrificed and thrown away all of your minions lives. Um, and that was just not worthwhile at all. And at no point Kabanda just go, doesn't go like, dude, that's just kind of what we do here. Like, <laughs> like he's, he's talking about like, oh, you've completely thrown away all of these lesser demons and just sent them into the meat grinder. And I was like, that sounds exactly like what corn would do. He's like, no, yeah. even any, he, he, no, what he specifically says is he says, does your God not care who, who is actually dying? And at no point I felt like Kabanda should have just been like, no, no, he doesn't. <laughs> even Kairos has something to say about this. And the kind of interplay that he has with uh, Kabanda is that like Kairos is, is complaining that Kabanda has thrown away the lives of all the Selenish demons and most of the corn demons, and it's been all for a waste. And Kabanda's whole thing is just like, I'm just stoking the fires. That's what we do. You know, I'm in I'm in control here and their lives are mine to waste. So the um the the, the initial kind of strike team that went in there with Robert on, he had Tinian, the psychic knoll with him. And she's actually what's kind of keeping the bad guys at bay somewhat. The psychic knoll force there is giving them a, that little bit of an edge to keep up the fight. And uh, happily, she actually survives. I kept waiting for her to you know get eat, cut in half by a <clears throat> Slaneshi demon or you're chopped in pieces by a blood letter, but it never happened. She, you know, she survives and ends up on the ship at the end. So, yay. I did appreciate as well that the way they chose to make their entry was to Kool-Aid man with a mastodon. That was, and it's yeah. all busted up. De- and yeah, beaten, definitely. It, it's still rolling. Yeah, yeah. that was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes, makes so, me want to print that, that mastodon file I have now. Oh, yeah, I, I you gave it to me as well. I need it's to get it too down. big for the printers that we have. Yeah, oh, is it? Well, good thing I know some people with Saturns. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, Sanguinius beats the snot out of these greater demons, and uh, they does it. Maybe I just completely missed this because I was trying to get the the book done. But does it really talk about how they actually dig the red tear out of? The dirt. No. It, I feel like they just Well, there's there's more climax here before we get to that. Yeah, because they okay. recognize that is, is it Tagus was is yes. he's in this glass sphere up in the ceiling. And it was somehow they used his body to cast he, a spell. He was the catalyst for this psychic shock that sent everybody on, you know, on a tear for the Red Thirst because Tagus was mortally wounded on murder and he thought he was abandoned. So he was put into this kind of trance-like state of dying and being resuscitated, dying, being resuscitated, dying, being resuscitated, all while being told he was forgotten about and abandoned by his legion. The legion never knew he was gone. So kind of the tragedy of Tagus basically is um, this 
this bitter, bitter soul who thought he had been left behind when in reality, uh, you know, he, he was on the honor roll on the red tier. He was given what burial could be given to him, uh, even though his remains were never recovered. And the, the shock, so to speak, of his soul being destroyed and remade, destroyed and remade, is the catalyst that the warp forces used to shock the blood angels into this frenzy. And they know that they need to somehow neutralize that in order to prevent the red first from taking control completely. So there's a few people that can sacrifice themselves to go do this, but it ends up being Marrow, the apothecary, right? Yeah. And he, he does the, um, swinging by the chandelier cords. Oh, but, but before the that he uses his, is it his reductor to punch through the, the, the face he, of the so word bearer? He, he, um, the, the word bearer charges him. And he actually clubs him a couple times with his bolter. And then the, uh, the word bearer gets him dead to rights, but then, yeah, exactly. He, um, he uses his reductor, his narthesium to, uh, to, to jam jam the needle up this word bearer's nose and kill him, which is a it, even though the word bearers are like forgettable mustache twirling villains, we've talked about that. It's a very satisfying end to these douchebags. So Marrow cuts the cable, and then uses it to swing up to the to this to this glass dome, and then Sanguinius follows him up there. Sanguinius is now given the choice to sacrifice himself to save his legion. But if he does that, you don't know, are they going to turn anyway? And Marrow realizes that someone has to sacrifice themselves, but it doesn't have to be Sanguinius. So he dives in, and then he becomes the specter of hate himself. He takes that on. He carves he carves out his own gene seed before he does mm-hmm. so. That was pretty baller. Which was a pretty gnarly scene. But yeah, he, he sacrifices himself to become the Red Angel, and uh, that, you know, he kind of saves Sanguinius from having to make that sacrifice. Nobody expected that. And in fact, um, Kairos is pushing the entire time. Still, He's still pinned to the wall by Sanguinius' sword, but he's pushing Sanguinius this whole time to try and make that sacrifice because, you know, it's it, it would be the, 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 the easiest way to get Sanguinius to turn to chaos. Uh, but he never even gets the opportunity because Meros does it for him. And Brandon, back to your question about how does the ship get off the planet? I thought it was wrecked beyond repair, but apparently they just do some repairs to the engines and then they just fly off, fly off the planet. Because I looked at that a couple times too. Yeah, I kind of, I didn't really like that because it's, it, it made me think back to No No Fear when that um, Imperial class battleship falls out of the sky on Calv, and I was like, that was not a small happening and this is an even bigger boat than that so yeah i agree um i think the red tier should have been left there because the rest of the fleet is still in orbit um or honestly it should they shouldn't have brought it down like i i don't think i think it should have i I think there's a lot of different things that could have happened um but i i don't know as far as writing goes i think the the ship from No No Fear was backsliding in the atmosphere. It was not a controlled descent. The uh, eventually the red tier is more of a controlled descent as it goes down. And these Gloriana battleships are are built incredibly tough. 
that's the only excuse I can think of. Again, I think it's kind of dumb. Um, once it was yeah, down, it should have stayed down. I, I agree with you in that. Like, I don't, I don't think that it's unheard of the idea that it would stay for the most part in one piece. What I, at that point, my concern is like trying to get this thing back up and break out of the gravity. Well, of this planet would probably fucking destroy the planet. Yeah, because these um, ships don't have engines on the bottom. They have thrust in the back. You know, I guess it's... Maybe they have mm-hmm. bottom engines. I don't know, but... Well, in a ship that size, you don't... That, that's getting built mm-hmm. in space. Well, and they, they talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when the ship is going down, uh, there's a narrative talking about how it was a hole crafted in the void. It was meant to die in the void. It was not meant to... to go into atmosphere. Yeah. So once it went down, I, again, I think it should have stayed down because they, they set it up. The author sets it up in that way. It never should have left, uh, left the planet's surface. Mm-hmm. But the Legion is saved. So happy ending. And then we get this little epilogue with Erebus and the war master and Erebus presents the prize here. You don't get a Legion, but I give you this guy and it's poor old Marrow. And he's been turned into Mero or Maris? The, the red angel. The red, Maris. Maris. the red angel, which is a um, demon-touched spirit of of rage. And he's a wep- he tells the War Master, I'm a weapon at your command. Now, does he show up again later, or is that a spoiler? I think he shows up in Siege of Terra. Yeah, and Erebus gets his face cut off, which I enjoy. Oh yeah, Erebus gets... Erebus gets put in his place because he tries to chew out the War Master for ordering Sanguinius be killed instead of turned. Erebus thinks that they could have turned Sanguinius, but uh, the War Master knows that that was never going to happen. So when Erebus kind of oversteps, chewing out the War Master for interfering with his plans, Horus walks up behind him and fucks him up. Yeah, he says... um, Remind them that they are not the architects of this war, Horace paused as he considered the bloody rag that was his new trophy. I am. And, and now Erebus can't blink because he's cut his eyelids off. I was I was 100% here for it. I so that's, that's that. the first time that Erebus gets put in his place like that. The second time is so much better. Are you talking about Betrayer? Talking about Betrayer. All right. I'm so, excited. any yeah. final thoughts on the book? Did we, anything big that we missed? You know, overall, I thought this was a really well put together story. Um, I know you guys said it was a little too long, but uh, for what it is, I was very happy. Um, th- and this is definitely a a much a, a very refreshing story compared to the last few that we've done. So, uh, yeah, again, very happy with it. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good read. I would recommend it to any fan of 40K or 30K. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it as well. Uh, Like I said, I had my complaints about the book, but overall, I do think it's a good book and I would recommend it. Yeah, again, I think James Swallow is a really solid author. I like a lot of the work that he's done other than these couple of heresy stories. The, The 40K stuff that he's done is very good. Um, just like his writing style, I think he, he does good descriptors. He does good characterizations. 
Um, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about this book. There's there's just a couple of wonky things here or there, but for the most part, I can I can overlook quite a bit of that. The the conclusion, the showdown with um, both fights with Kabanda and Sanguinis are great. I really love the uh, the the conclusion of that last battle where he rips off Kabanda's wings and says, "Only angels may fly." And then he drags him over to the warp pit and says, "If you true truly do hail from the realms of hell, then tell them it was Sanguinius who threw you back." And then he throws this giant bloodthirster down in his hell pit, and it was such a great ending to that that conflict. Well, and one of the things I love as well is that uh, Kabanda says in the first fight with Sanguinius, Kabanda says, you know, if you refuse my offer, I'm going to hound you and your sons until the end of time. And he comes back to the Blood Angels many, 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 many times. Like he goes, he, I think he ends up on a ball at, at one point more towards 40K. So it's... It's a rivalry that will last millennia. I do like the scene at the the kind of the midpoint of that first fight where Kabanda says, "We will never lie to you. It's not Corn's way. Corn won't lie to you. He'll just stab you in the face over and over again." So yeah, I think it's yeah, but he'll do it to your yeah face. exactly. He'll do it to your face. Any other final thoughts there, guys? Thanks for having me. Had a good time. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really glad you came yeah, by. This was a fun yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. Um I like I like this book. Um what's our next book? Do we anybody have that handy? Shadows of Treachery, which is an anthology. Fuck. But after that we get a couple of good ones. Yeah. We get Angel Exterminatus and then Betrayer. Yeah, the Mark of Calf book isn't too bad. And then Vulcan lives is really bad. Yeah. And unremembered empire is not great. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah. we'll have another hobby round table after this folks, you know, in a couple of weeks and then a couple of weeks after that, it's on shadows of treachery. And so shadows of treachery has seven different short stories. So maybe we ought to make that like a mega guest appearance, uh, podcast that night. You bring in all, all your friends. Uh, all, yeah, maybe. It's not a bad idea. Anyway, folks, why don't you go ahead and look us up on social media. We are legioncast18 at gmail.com if you want to email us. And we are legioncast, a horse heresy podcast on Twitter if you want to check out our Twitter feed. Until then, we'll see you next time. Yep, thanks for stopping by, everybody. And remember to march in fortune. <laughs>